0: Been attending my class this is a continuation but for those who are joining me today um this will be something new so for those who are in my class regularly forgive me because i'll probably do a little four or five minute review just to keep everybody up at speed if that makes sense and then we'll we'll start kind of where we're at in first samuel but let's open with prayer lord god in heaven uh thank you for another day in which to live and worship you Thank you for another Sunday, which is a resurrection day, so we're reminded every time we're here and as we gather that your son was raised on the third day, and because of him, we have hope. So as we look in the Old Testament, where every promise is yes in Christ, help us, Lord, to discern what your will is for us. Help us to glean something from this about how um, it points to your son, but also some things that we can learn just in our daily lives as we look at Saul and David and all these other figures in 1 Samuel. So thank you, Lord, for your word and how you don't let us grope in the dark, but rather give us clarity. Through, uh, through your means of grace. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so what we're doing today is we're going to look at the last few chapters of 1 Samuel. So to catch you up to speed, for those of you who have not been in my class, we spent a good chunk of time um, leading uh, establishing Saul. So we started in 1 Samuel 1, and we worked our way into the 20s. And really from about chapter 20 to about 27, Saul is chasing after David. And so David spares Saul's life twice. Once in a cave, one time he even cuts a piece of his robe off um, and shows it to him. And and Saul each time says, You know, he's more righteous than me. And Saul acknowledges it, but then he goes after him anyways, right? And that sort of thing. And David refuses, David refuses to actually lay a hand on God's anointed. Even though David himself has been anointed by Samuel as the next king, while Saul is still alive, David refuses to lay his hand on Saul's anointed, even though seemingly God has given Saul into his hands. And so David is being more kingly than Saul, right? That's the, the mark of a king, not only when to take a life, but when to spare one. That's a Gandalf quote, by the way, if you know the Lord of the Rings, okay? <laughs> okay? But that's this, not only just to take, but to spare, David spares, David shows his mercy. David shows that he recognizes who's really in charge because if God has called Saul god's going to take saul's life on his own volition when it's when it's time it's on god's timing not david's timing so david refuses to do so um in first samuel 25 i didn't get much of a chance to talk about this david marries abigail it's my sister's name by the way david's good wife um if you look between the context uh, uh abigail is a kinsman of david meaning she's in the same tribe And so it's like, what about polygamy? What about these sort of things? It's most likely that David is a form of kinsman redeemer to Abigail, meaning that they're related to each other. And so her husband dies. And so David out of benevolence takes her into his household to raise up a child for her. It's the same thing we see with Ruth in the book of Ruth with Boaz. It's also um, a failure that happens in Genesis with Onan, the sin of Onan and the story of Tamar and Judah and all that, that really kind of kind of horrific story uh, in Genesis where it doesn't shrink away from our brokenness. And so that Leverite marriage idea is found throughout the Old Testament. So David acts as a kinsman redeemer to Abigail. And Abigail shows up actually in First Samuel 25 is like kind of the hero of that chapter. She looks better than both David and her husband, to be honest, Nahor, which means fool. So anyways, this is all going on while Saul is pursuing David. But now what we need to do is get to the end of Saul. And I promised that last week to my class. And so we're going to start in 1 Samuel 28 and then go to 31. So a lot of this is continuous narrative. Now, if you came in late, there are on the back table, there are these outlines. And so if you didn't grab one, yeah, most of you got one. This is just kind of from a study Bible that I use. It's the ESV Archaeology Study Bible. And I use this because this is based in real history. And so it helps us to kind of know some things. So if you have that in front of you, I won't. Read that religiously, that it'll help explain what's going on, because there's a really, really strange, and I mean strange passage in 1 Samuel 28 that we need to address. Um, commentators since the beginning have speculated on what in the world is going on here, uh, because it's a violation of God. Everybody agrees this is a violation of God's law, but what in the world is Saul doing? And in fact, First Chronicles, when it talks about the death of Saul, says this is one of the reasons of many that God rejects Saul as king. So let's look at this, and I'll project this for you. I'm recording this because I put these on YouTube eventually. And so there's a whole playlist on the Grace Pocatello website on this as we look through First Samuel. So here we go. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. This is the ESV, by the way. If you're not used to joining me, this is the ESV that's projected for you. And Oxus, that's the king of Gath. David's been working for the king of the Philistines because he's in exile from Saul. Uh, he said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Akish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, which, by the way, is what he's supposed to do. Okay, so he starts off again. Saul starts off okay at times. But then he corrupts himself out of fear and out of pride. Here, I'm going to minimize my face on here so you don't have to see my face twice. All right, here we go. All right. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul, saw, Saul saw, saw, that's a good tongue twister, Saul saw. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Urim are the two, there's the Urim and the Thummim that was kept on the priest's breastplate. And so it was used there to, def, and it was kind of like a yes or no sort of thing from God. It was only through the priest. But if he gets no answers, because and he doesn't get an answer in any way, the answer is because God's already rejected him as king. He's already been rejected, okay? So that's why it's also the prophet. So in any means that God has provided in the Old Testament, God has said no to Saul, Okay. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that's a go-between between the living world and the spirit world, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Endor. So rather than taking God's no as an answer and saying, why isn't God talking to me? I'm going to repent of my sins. I'm going to, you know, offer sacrifices. I'm going to go to the priest. I'm going to do anything that I can do to try to humble myself before God. Saul instead says, well, God's not doing it. So I'm on my, I need an answer now. And I want my, an answer on my terms. And since he wants an answer on my terms, he's going to violate the law to get the answer he wants. Okay. So that's to give you an idea of where Saul's mindset is. This is showing again, why God has rejected him as king. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. So not only is he doing the wrong thing, he's deceiving people into doing the wrong thing with him. This is different than David hiding himself so he doesn't get killed. Okay, this is not the same. We're not even on the same level of things. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that Saul has done and how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. A necromancer is somebody who tries to restore the dead, right? Why then are you laying a trap for my life and bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So think about what Saul's doing right here. He is swearing by the Lord while committing sin. A deliberate sin. sin. This is not accidental. This is not in ignorance. This is not weakness, you know, human frailty. This is, he is deliberately violating God's laws and seeking somebody out that he was, that he had tried to kick out before and then swearing by the Lord to protect this person who's doing things God has already condemned. So this is, I mean, there's sin upon sin upon sin going on here, right? Depravity upon depravity. Okay. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, this is where this gets weird. She cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the women, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Okay, so that's this is a weird passage. And if you t- read, there's commentators that say numerous things about this, and you have some stuff in front of you. Luther says one thing. Later, Lutherans say another thing. So, I mean, it's all over the map. The church fathers are all over the map on this. Jewish commentators are all over the map on this in terms of what is going on. So I just gave you one kind of -of middle-of-the-road take on this to kind of explain this. But the first thing that I want to emphasize, trying to contact the dead, sorcery, necromancy, and all those things are condemned throughout the Old Testament. Okay, and it's in Leviticus Leviticus it's very clear. And in fact, it's even tied in to other abominable practices that the people, the Israelites were driving out when they conquered the land of Canaan. So it's actually listed among other sins in the Old Testament, things like uh, sexual sins, uh, like bestiality and incest, but also other things like um child sacrifice, and a whole variety of things that are condemned. And so it's on a whole list because the reason it's condemned is they were doing these things. And so God says, don't do this stuff. And so if you're a king, you don't tolerate this in your, in your kingdom, right? And so that's why Saul had driven them out. But the first thing you need to know that nowhere is this endorsed, okay? It's, it's condemned immediately. And as I said, and we'll get to it in a second, in First Chronicles, this is put as a list of one of Saul's sins and why God rejects it. So the first thing you need to understand when you read this is this is not a you should do this too if God doesn't answer you, okay? That is not what this means at all okay? And so we can parse this story, but just again with that overall context that helps that helps us look at this passage, because it is admittedly a really weird and really strange passage that we have here. If you want the references there, by the way, it's Leviticus 19, 31, Leviticus 26 and uh, verse 27, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, and so it's condemned numerous times in the Old Testament, both The first time the covenant is given. And then when it's restated, when Moses goes through it all again, right before he dies, when they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy. So it's it's listed in both. But those references are in that second paragraph for you. If you want to see the exact wording of that on how that's condemned in the Old Testament, I might come back to it in uh, in just a second. Okay. so what I love about this commentary, look what it says. It says uh, halfway through that first paragraph, it says this passage should not be used as an argument for having seances. Though it suggests that in some circumstances a medium may be able to contact the dead, it stresses the wrongness of this practice. Furthermore, the only message from the dead Samuel, besides a reputation, sorry, a repetition of the message of Saul's rejection, was that Saul and his sons would die. The chronicler, here's the quote, specifically mentioned this incident as one reason for Saul's death. So Saul died for his breach of faith, in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. So this is one of his ultimate sins. I mean, Saul Saul sins throughout for Samuel, but this one's actually listed by the chronicler as one of the main reasons that Saul goes to his death. So again, that should convince you if it doesn't. And I don't know if you know this. I'm just going to say an aside for you, but these sort of occultic practices are on the rise culturally. Okay, Um, when I talk to my seniors, we do a comparative religion unit. And so I have a unit and I call it I call it like a bunch of different things, but it's basically New Age, Wicca, neo-paganism and the occult. And I put it kind of all under under one kind of umbrella because they're all kind of distantly related to each other. But Wiccans, those are people that consider themselves modern day witches that do some of this stuff. Okay, their numbers double about every 10 years in the United States. In the West Coast, there are entire covens. Those are female witch practices that go out into the woods and nature worship in the trees right now in the United States, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. There are stores here in town that sell secret crystals and stones to try to heal you and to try to give you certain metaphysical energy and properties to like change your vibrational energy. That happens here. I mean, you're, there are there are stores here that. So this is not. We read this passage in First Samuel and say, "Oh, that's that's just weird. That's you know back you know around a thousand BC." No, it happens now. And there's a great quote from G.K. Chesterton, um, and he wrote, and it's it's one of his columns, and he says, "When people give up God, he says two things about what happens when people give up God." The first thing he says is if you abolish the God, government becomes God. That's the first thing he says. Because people don't look to God for answers. They're going to look to the government for answers. Okay. The second thing he says is that when people don't believe in God, it's not that they don't believe in nothing or they believe in nothing. It's that they will believe in anything. The default nature of a human being is to be spiritual. Atheism is hard work. It is. People are not naturally atheists. People are naturally spiritual. The number one demographic rising in the United States right now, if you look at Pew Research or if you look at the U.S. Census or in whatever data you use, is the people that say they are spiritual but not religious. That's the there are, Some people call them the nuns. You'll often hear hear that too. Oh, so that's what that is. That's, yeah, I don't have any specific affiliation. I'm not an atheist. I'm just – I have my own internal or own individual spirituality. So the number one rising demographic in the United States is spiritual, but not religious. So again, our default nature is to believe in something. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, whether it's people that are not Christians in our high school and their families that have come through, or also just in just my life that say, I don't believe in God, but I believe in ghosts. Ghosts. Yeah. I, I cannot tell you how many people I've, I've talked to that are like that. They'll say, "Oh, God doesn't exist. God's me, and I don't believe in God, or I don't believe in the devil, and that whole Christianity thing is bunk." Did you hear about the haunting in Pokey (laughs) High? I'm not joking. That's, I mean, that is very common because people again have that default spirituality. So I don't believe in God, but I do believe in the paranormal. I don't believe in God, but I do believe in skinwalkers. Or I mean, I hear stuff like this. It's it's it seems funny to us as people who are believers and know better. But you should know that our neighbors here in Pocatello struggle on this stuff. And it's a big thing. And so, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a true story, then I'll move on. This is, and it's relevant to our text. That's why I'm telling you this. This is not just for the sake of talking about this, it just tells you that this is as old as sin. These sort of like trying to go around God or engage in things on your own terms. That is not new. It's from the, it's the original lie from the beginning. You're going to be wise in your own eyes. This is the original lie, and Saul's just living it out. And it's a warning for us. But I talked about this with one high school student. And this was a high school student who really struggled on a lot of issues. She had been in counseling, um, had identity uh, crises, was confused about male and female. I mean, she just really was struggling in a a variety of different areas in her life um, for a variety of different reasons. There might have been some trauma there and some other things. But I started talking about this stuff. And I actually showed a a video from somebody who used to be in the occult who practiced these things. He made he was he was making thirty thousand dollars a month blogging on the occult, like on how to use crystals. And the new age is named Stephen Bancarts, Stephen Bancarts, former cult member. Now he's a Christian. Okay. So he talked about how these crystals are supposed to work and everything. And he talked about how most of it's bunk. And even if it is, it's condemned in scripture. You know what I mean? Even if it does work, like it does kind of here. And so he does that. And this student is sitting in the corner and she's like, she kind of looks, she's sitting there. She's getting, she's shrinking and shrinking. And then she pulls out a crystal like in my classroom and says, She just goes. I'm sorry, Mr. Hayes. It was like you know, like one of those moments because she was grasping for anything because she was struggling, you know. And so she was grasping. She actually had a crystal one, and she thought. And I was like, No, this is not people who use them for decorations, right? Or, oh, that's that's a pretty rock. I mean, that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about people who use them like this to somehow affect your spiritual energy, to somehow manipulate nature. And there are Christians that get sucked into this too. Just so you know, this is not just anybody. So my, you know, my MO. So what I tell my students and I tell my kids or anybody else is why would you even touch it at all? Right. Why even mess with it? If, if God is who he says he is, why would you even mess with it? Right. That's, that's just the question that I would ask somebody. And it's usually out of desperation or darkness or, uh, or lack of clarity or desperation. People just reach out for, they try to grasp anything. And sometimes they grasp the wrong thing. So just, just letting you know that we see this passage here, but, in 2023 in Pocatello, Idaho, this stuff still happens. Okay, and people still do this. um Supreme, I, I, This was a news story. I can't believe this. So, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022 with the the Dobbs decision, there was a story in the I think it was in the New Yorker, or somebody, and it was about how a coven in New York and New York City were getting together to cast hexes and spells on the Supreme Court justices. I'm not joking. It was in the New Yorker. You know, and like they were naming, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and all these other, and I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying that people actually think that does something. They're actually engaging in those practices. Yeah, go ahead. Based on my experience, there's only one crystal out there that actually gives person powers. that. Path, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least in their own mind, right? That's a whole other. Actually, it you know, it's funny. The word pharmacy comes from the Greek word pharmakia, and that actually is related to sorcery. That's the same root word. And so using pharmaceuticals to achieve other states of consciousness, we talk about that also because the, the, the drug culture is also tied into this often because you're trying to achieve a certain like enlightenment or like oneness with the universe and, and you know, and all these other different things. Um, there's the famous Timothy Leary quote from the 1960s, uh, turn on, tune in and drop out. You ever heard that craze back in the day, right? That's, so that's not unrelated. You say that, but it's actually not unrelated. Um, They would often inhale. The, uh, this is the witch at Endor, but the oracle at Delph- Delphi in ancient Greece, she would be in this room, and she, there was like vapors underneath, and she would inhale these vapors, and then she would babble. And people like, oh, she's in a trance, and she's doing things. And then the priest would interpret her babble. And the reason it sounded awesome is everybody went to that Oracle. And so since they debriefed everybody there, they could just wow people with their amazing advice because they were like the data bank of the ancient world. And so- yeah so well let's let's be kind here but 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 you do get what i'm saying though she would i know what you're saying but 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 you get the point that i'm making right is that in other words it's this is as old as the ancient world this is not new and this happens still today in our current culture but that what happened now here's the real question i want to ask the actual and then then we'll get to the death assault what actually happens so there's a few options here okay So, as you see here, it says, so in verse, if you look at your outline here, this is kind of interesting, okay? Verse 12, she cried out in a loud voice. Perhaps Samuel's appearance surprised the woman, and she thought something was happening outside her control. Another possibility is that her previous activities had called up only deceptive demonic imitations, but this time she suddenly realized something was much more real. Readers are not told how the woman realized who Saul was. Perhaps the spirit called his name as he came up. A god is literally gods here with a plural form, so not god, which is a plural noun, but takes a singular verb. The term is used to the spirits of the dead in ancient Near Eastern texts. The Moabite gods, quote unquote, may have been the spirits of the dead. Saul, however, is interested in Samuel as a person and asks about his appearance. The robe was Samuel's characteristic garment. And so if you read Luther, and actually some of you might have this, and I think there's one up here. Um, one of these. Yeah, there it is if you look at study Bibles on this, so this is a different study Bible. If you have the Luton study Bible, I'm interested to see what your notes are. But in this one, because I looked at this one, I'll, I'll just give it to you. First um, Samuel 28 study, but this is where study Bibles are helpful. So this is what this one says. The episode has been understood in many different ways. The two most likely explanations are God permitted the spirit of Samuel to appear to the woman. That's why she's shocked. She doesn't expect this to happen. She's usually just kind of like pulling a trick on somebody, Right. But now this is out of her control. That's one option. Okay, two. The woman had contact with an evil or devilish spirit in the form of Samuel by whom she was deceived and control. That's Luther's position, by the way. Luther thinks this is fake, that it's a, it's a demonic imitation, that Saul is in league with the forces of evil at this point because he's rejected God. And so God allows this demonic imitation of Samuel to tell the truth that Saul is going to die. But that's not the real Samuel. That's Luther's position. But that's not all Luther's positions because this is admittedly a tricky position, okay? It says, whatever the explanation of this mysterious affair, the medium was used by God in some way to convey to Saul that the impending battle would bring death, would dash his hopes for a dynasty, and would conclude his reign with a devastating defeat of Israel that would leave the nation at the mercy of the Philistines, the very people whom, against whom he had struggled all his years as king. And this would come, as Samuel had previously announced, because of his unfaithfulness to the Lord. When she cries out, by whatever means, the medium suddenly becomes aware that she's dealing with Saul. So the answer is, is we do not, this is not like one of those passages where, we're like, well, this is exactly what it means, and you better believe this, or otherwise, you're not a good Lutheran. We we don't take that position. What we do think is clear is that this is always condemned, that Saul by doing this is showing his character, that this is a this is troubling, and that God is somehow using this to communicate to Saul. This is your end basically, okay? And so it's kind of like the very thing that you're trying to avoid is going to happen to you by doing this. And so there's a lot of ironies that are kind of heaped in this text. And so don't be surprised though. There are many people that will ask questions about this, but no, this does not mean that we need to do seances with table wrapping, okay? This is one of those things where God allows somebody doing the wrong thing in order to accomplish his purposes. Okay. God can even turn evil for good. We know that in the scriptures. Okay. God doesn't tell you to do this. Remember, in all of scripture, one question you need to ask yourself every time. This is something that you need to, it does, especially in narrative, whether it's in 1 Samuel or in the New Testament, in something like the book of Acts. The book of Acts is famous for this. Okay. But the Old Testament is very famous for this, too. There's a difference in scripture between something that is descriptive and prescriptive. You, you, we, we, I cannot emphasize that enough. A lot of our errors and many of our, and, and they're fellow Christians, but a lot of the errors that we encounter with our fellow Christians are people that confuse those issues. Is this, thus saith the Lord, go do this thing, or is it this happened? You can tell the truth, this happened, and not say, well, then go and do this thing. That answers part of the polygamy question, by the way, like how David has multiple wives. Does that mean go be like David, or is it just reporting what happened? Right. Whereas in Genesis one, here's Adam, here's Eve, be fruitful, go multiply in the same way. A man will be united with his wife. Jesus restates it in Matthew. So that creation mandate for marriage with one man and one woman, that is prescribed. Both of the old New Testaments having multiple wives is never commanded. Leverite right marriages, but that's not that's a brokenness. And that's because in that culture we need to, we, that we were trying to take care of widows. Right. To raise up chi- children for widows. That's the whole purpose is to have an heir. It's not. Oh, yeah, you should have multiple wives. Okay, it's an accommodation to human brokenness, but the original creation, and as restated in Matthew, is one man, one woman. So that's the same issue, and it's the same thing here. Just because it's reported that David had multiple wives, or just because it's reported, Saint Solomon's even going to go crazier, right? Or here in First Samuel, just because it's reported that Saul can be, uh, works with a medium and it works, does not mean that it's therefore go and do likewise, right? We're going to add. Go ahead, Rashad. I was just going to say that I we had missionaries visiting us once and. They were talking about multiple marriage. And, and I mm-hmm. said, that, well, where, where does, you know, I said, OK, you can believe that if you want, because that's what it is, it, because it is in the Bible. I said, but look at what happens yeah. every time there is siblings kill each other. There's incest among the siblings uh from different marriages. Uh The parents really have a problem with where things go. And I said, there is not a single instance of a uh of a, a, Plural marriage that didn't have consequences because of breaking that first law. Right, you're absolutely and, correct. Oh, okay. So that was that not that. Right, because that's what they'll appeal to. You're absolutely correct. And actually, we I've I've had that discussion just recently um, about that. You know, it's like, well, it was restored only for 50 years just to try to get the thing going. You know, and it's it's just uh, yeah. So you get you get those sort of answers, and I'm not trying to call people out. It's just you know that's a that's a challenge, right, for us because we see that and we're like, no, yeah. that. It's I get what you're doing. And admittedly, you can say that that's there. But to, again, that prescripted versus descriptive. The, the famous one, again, the book of Acts is famous for this. While the disciples broke, they held everything in common. See, all Christians need to be communists. Hmm. It's like, okay, no, that's not what that means. You see what I'm saying? Like, that just means that at the time they held everything in common because they loved each other and they're one body. It doesn't mean that all Christians everywhere at all time need to hold everything in common and be communists. Okay, but that's what people do, right? They'll read that little section in Acts and yes. say, "Well, that's everybody for all time." It's also one of the reasons we get things like you have to be baptized a certain way, and they'll say that because, well, in the book of Acts this happened. It's like, well, I agree that that happened. Nobody disagrees with that. But now you have to somehow say that because that happened, that's how it happens for everyone in all places and in all times, right? That's the that's difference. How it has to be done, right? So that's descriptive versus prescriptive. If that's helpful, because that the Bible can be abused in so many ways this way, and so it's important that you know that distinction here. Okay. All right. I need to get to the death of Saul. we got like 15 minutes because i gotta, I got to go back and do 11 o'clock. So I'm going to skip ahead. David, this is the Philistines and the debate. I want to get to Saul uh, 31 and show you how this works out. Okay. Let's see. There it is. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Goboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the philistines struck down jonathan and that's sad you should be sad about that yeah cuz jonathan didn't do anything i mean J- jonathan was the faithful friend jonathan acknowledged david as king jonathan gave david all his royal robes jonathan was was a man of action when saul was a coward i mean jonathan is the hero but jonathan is still his father's son and he's with his dad and it's really sad that saul, jonathan is caught up in his in the train of his son's i mean his dad's uh you know i guess path of destruction okay So he struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly, badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me which is true, they probably would have because he was the enemy king and the Philistines were not known exactly for their moral exemplary behavior in combat, right? So Saul's not completely wrong about this. And remember, whenever you see that word, the, when it says the uncircumcised, that's an insult, okay? And it's like saying those, these, gen, it's like later on it's Goyim or Gentiles, you know, it's those those unclean people. It's an insult, okay? So lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me, but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. And kind of like David, David doesn't kill him either, right? They fear. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came up and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of beth And they came to Jabesh and buried them and burned them there, sorry. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. And that's how First Samuel actually ends. Now, in the original, for those of you who haven't been in my classes, the original scroll of Samuel was not divided into two books. But back then, these are heavy. So it sounds like it's kind of like this cliffhanger. In the original, it would have been right into 2 Samuel because we're going to get David, right? So just to make sure that we're clear on this. And a couple of things that I want to comment on this text. Number one, this is what we'd call an ignoble death about as much as you can get here. Because not only do you lose in battle, you commit, you fall on your own sword, right? Which is kind of a form of shame. It's like a ritual kind of honor shame thing. The closest thing that I can think of in a different culture like this is a samurai, Kind of like samurai immolation, right? I don't want the enemy to kill me, so I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> so, right, almost kind of the kamikaze type, type thing going on. So that's what Saul does here by falling on his own sword. In fact, Asian cultures sometimes understand the Old Testament better than we do because they kind of have this honor-shame culture thing going on. So if you read the Old Testament to somebody from Japan or China or Korea, they kind of get it better because they think more in terms of corporate shame and corporate honor and corporate guilt. And so they it makes more sense to them than it does to us because we're radically individualistic, right? So those Asian cultures tend to understand passages like this at least more immediately than we do. But in Jewish culture in particular, uh, you need to understand that the way you dealt with the dead was a big deal. Okay, so I want to start with that and then I'll go back to Saul here in a second and kind of go back to your study guide here. But the way you dealt with your dad is a big deal because you did not want to be dishonored as a, as a in in history, so to speak, and your memory wiped out by your body being removed or des- desecrated, basically. Okay, so the Philistines desecrate Saul's body and his son's body, they're displaying them, right? They're displaying these as a, as a form of trophy. And of course, it, that's I mean, that's about as ritually shamed as you can get in this culture. Okay, so this is actually an act of courage and bravery, but also in Jewish culture, doing the right thing. By the way, if you didn't remember this, Jabesh Gilead is the town that the ark was in for a while. So there's something about the people of this village. They kind of get it. They're pious. They're faithful Jews. Does that make sense? They're people who actually live out God's laws. Notice they also fast afterwards in mourning. So even though Saul screws up and Saul dies an ignoble death, he was still God's anointed for a time. And so they actually treat him with respect and actually mourn the loss of God's anointed for seven days. So the people of Jabesh Gilead come out really well here. But desecrating the bones is a thing. And by the way, collecting the bones after a burning, especially after war, because you have like, lots of dead, was also not uncommon. And really, even as late as the uh, New Testament period, they would often, for a while, even put the bones in a box. They're called ossuaries. If you've ever seen those before, they're called ossuaries. So they'd wash the bones and then put the bones in a bone box called an ossuary. We discovered in archaeology Caiaphas's bone box, for example the same Caiaphas that we see in the new Testament is actually labeled. We've actually found his bone box. It's pretty cool if you think about it, but in archeology, span but that's, that shows you that this practice, even as early as a thousand years before Caiaphas, the idea that we're going to kind of treat the bones with respect, you know, and, and take care of them was very much part of, of Jewish culture. So that's, what's going on there back to Saul himself. This is uh it's sad, but this is what actually happens to him. And so in first Chronicles, First Chronicles 10, 11 through 12, I mean, 10, 1 through 12 is taken mainly from this passage here. And so in the Chronicler's account, so I'm on the back side of this. You want to see this, by the way. I'm on the back side. This is where we use scripture to interpret scripture. The, the person who wrote the book of Chronicles, almost certainly a priestly or scribal source, writing about 500 years later. He's writing 500 years later. Okay. Says the following Saul's reign is significant for the chronicler only as a failure. It ends in disaster for Israel at the hands of the Philistines, against whom Saul originally had been raised up as a military savior. Saul's death, together with three of his sons, also marks the end of his royal house. None of his descendants will rule over his in his place over Israel. When it mentions the temple of Dagon in 1 Corinthians, here it says Asheroth, Saul's humiliation contrasts with the triumph of the Ark over Dagon. So This is something you may have missed here. And then also notice at the end that the Lord is the one who actually puts him to death. Not David, the Lord. Not David on his own terms. God does it on his own terms. So to review, so some of you were not in my class before. If you go back to 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines capture the ark. They put the ark in the temple of Dagon. That's one of the gods. And the ark every morning causes the, the statue of Dagon to fall on his face. And then he's missing his head and his arms. He falls multiple times, and then they get struck with the black death, with the plague, and they have to get rid of the ark. So the ark triumphs. God triumphs, okay, in 1 Samuel 5. Now, because God has rejected Saul, and Saul rejected God, because that's actually how this starts, by the way, okay? So now Saul is being brought into these temples, and he's ritually humiliated, and it's like a permanent humiliation until his body's rescued. It's not successful. Okay, um, Ashtaroth, by the way, is a goddess at the time. We also know her as Astarte, if you don't know her. Um, we know her through Greek mythology as Aphrodite. So it's the same. So in the Eastern Mediterranean, a lot, of, uh, a lot of these cultures had similar kind of pantheons of gods and goddesses where they kind of copied each other. And so Ashtaroth was a fertility and love type goddess. And so Saul's body is being humiliated for their fertility cult, which is pretty gruesome and kind of weird but that's what they're doing. And so Aphrodite, the Greeks kind of sanitize it and make it more lofty, but it really is the same gods um, as far as things go. Um, Baal, if you run into Baal, Baal's a storm God. Baal is appropriated and becomes Zeus. Okay. In Greek mythology. And so if you think, if you think of your Greco Roman theology, a lot of them have counterparts in this medieval culture because this Mediterranean world, a lot of people traveled and exchanged these things. So you can actually go and do some research on this and see how these things uh, um, uh, fall through. Okay. All right. So that's the ignoble death, and what this leads us to, of course, is David. It kind of ends on this. It says, "Therefore, look at the last part of your outline here. It gives you his his uh, sense, right? Here's why. It says this is the chronicle's theological explanation for the death of Saul, caused by his breach of faith, right? Hebrew mahal is what we is the the breach of faith, and expressed especially in failing to keep the command of the Lord." consulting the medium of Endor, which we just read, and failing to seek the Lord, which here denotes not the search for a prophetic oracle, which Solomon sought, but rather the deficiency of his basic spiritual condition. Therefore, the Lord turned the kingdom over to David. This is the main point of this chapter in Chronicles. A second decisive turning point from God in the history of the kingdom, which occurs later in the second Chronicles, when Rehoboam did not listen to the people. That's Solomon's son. So it happens again. So the chronicler is looking back 500 years later with the kind of like the import of history. You ever heard the phrase history, uh, uh history is 2020 hindsight, right? Having 2020 mean, hindsight. So the chronicler is looking back, and God, when He inspired the chronicler, says, All right, let's put in why this happens to Saul. In case people aren't clear, reading first Samuel, if they weren't clear yet, let's make this clear in a condensed form in first Chronicles 10 and explain why Saul dies. And so that's the end of his reign. It's a tragedy, Saul really is a tragedy. Um, and so, because he starts so well and the promise is so great, but he ultimately fails. and that's and that's a that's a word for us. Um, a couple of things that I want to mention here theologically, and it's good repeating, and then we'll kind of close here for the day, um because I want to be able to rest my voice a little bit because I gotta uh, do stuff at eleven, of course, um is one of the things that we need to that gets asked here when it says, God rejected Saul, God rejected Saul and all these other different things, We need to remember that it's because God Saul had already rejected God, and God confirms him in his unbelief. Okay, so when we read Pharaoh harden, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. When we look at Saul, when we look at all these different passages, the best way that I tell my students this, and Pastor Dinger came up with this, and I like this, is you need to think Burger King theology. Okay, <laughs> have it your way, and that's what God does, is He says, "Okay, have it your way." That's what this is. If you want to reject me, if you want to do it on your own terms, if you want to worship yourself, if you want to be prideful, if you want to reject what I'm doing for you you'll reap the consequences of your actions. Have it your way. And it's not because God wants this, but God doesn't force the issue. And at some point, that's a sad moment when God turns you over to your own devices. Romans 1 says something very similar. When it says God gives them up, he says God gives them up or gives them over to a depraved mind. At some point, they worship the creator, I mean, the creation rather than the creator. Saul, in this case, his pride, he's worshiping himself, the creator, creation Rather than the Creator, so God terms them more. So my theological word for you there, just as a reminder, it's not that God doesn't want. Him. We also know from Scripture that God wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, because and the reason I have to say that is because we live in a culture that's very heavily influenced by Calvinism, where like God declares before all time, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, right? That that double predestination. We are not that. There's not a single person Jesus didn't die for, including Saul, both ways down the timeline. Okay, there's not a single person Jesus didn't die for, but yet. Yet, in its sadness, there are some people that basically say, No thanks, God, and say, And God says, All right, have it your way. And there's some mystery there, how that exactly works in God's eternal counsel. And we're not willing to go beyond what scripture says on that issue and have like a complete system or something. Go ahead. So, when, when um, Saul was killed, three of his sons were killed with him, but he had more sons than that. His first is seven of them. Yeah. Now, it's... His book, becomes the thing of Israel. Right. But that's the northern kingdom. Right. And so and that's and that's kind of the apostates. Mm -hmm. Right. They're the apostate kingdom. He's already been rejected. And his dynasty is not it's no longer in existence at this point. And so it's not considered like a continuation of his reign. You have a you have a separate kingdom and it's a northern kingdom and it's considered kind of like an apostasy. So it's it's, it's not really fulfilled. Does that make sense? Because he's not really he's not really ruling Israel in the way Saul was. You have this apostate basically. So, yes, that's a good point, though, Um, when God rejects, because that also happens with uh, Eli's sons, right there, because God rejects them. And yet they're still kind of in kind of there. Sometimes God is the way I I love this. Paul Copan in his book is God a moral monster. Quotes this when you read these Old Testament prophecies and promises. It's like God is almost always almost late. (laughs) right by our standards right why is this still going on why is this still happening why is god still why is he tarrying? but then when he does it the timing's perfect right you know what i'm saying so god is almost always almost always late you know (laughs) it's kind of an odd way of thinking about that that's how i kind of that's the way i address that but that's a good point though you're right there are the family members and the same was with eli too when god rejects eli and his kids as priests you still find some of their family members around for a while but in the end they're ultimately wiped out and in this case if you're the ruler the ruler of an apostate kingdom you're not really doing much, right? The real faithful kings are in Judah at that point. So no good point though. Anybody else have a comment or question before we close with the blessing? I have one simple comment, but it's probably unrelated to anything spiritual, but I just find it amazing how you see two different areas where people still honor, they're still giving honor to things that you wouldn't see otherwise. Like, so the the, the medium, she she kills the fat and cat. Why would you waste the cat and, cat and then And then also the armor, the armor, um, just kills himself. He, yeah, you. He saw how evil Saul was living his life. I would have said, "See you later." But, I. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of comments I might make on that. So, and actually, that's good. That's a good way to just to kind of react to the import of the text, and I like that. Just reading the narrative. One thing I'll say with the armor bearer. That's a, again, this is an honor shame culture, and so he views himself as a failure because Saul died, and now he's like, I can't. I'm not going to live with this shame. And so now I'm going to die. So he immolates himself because it's, a, it's an honor killing. Does that make sense? At least in my mind, from, from, an, from the armor bearer standpoint, that's there. Now, what was the other one? What was the first one you, you're talking about? Uh, oh, just, the fattened calf. Yeah. She's afraid. She's <laughs> afraid. <laughs> and so she's trying to make Saul happy because he's grumpy. He hasn't been eating. Uh, and he's, remember how she says, why did you deceive me? You're Saul. Saul kicked me how She's freaked out about this. So she's going, she's sparing no expense to make sure that she, her life is not in danger. That's, that's what she's doing she's going above and beyond even though Saul's trying to reassure you remember this is Saul's character now he's already deceived her once he's like all right you already tricked me once and you're saying I'm okay but forgive me if I don't believe you let's eat you see what she was she she's she 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 doing here okay so there's a little bit I think she's afraid but that's just kind of my my take on that so yeah buttering him up that's exactly right and well literally and figuratively right the all right let's do the let's do the blessing may the Lord bless us and keep us The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.